Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's coming up on the podcast today. Today, I remember my grandfather who served in the Second World War and my great-grandfather who served in the First World War, but I'm going to ask a tough question. What is it that we are remembering and what possibly is beneath it? Are we celebrating something that we really don't want to? Some tough questions about Remembrance Day. And Tim Cook, historian and author, he joins me to talk about his new book, Remembering and Forgetting. That is all coming up, plus Catherine McDonald with a look at day one of the Alex Manassian trial. That's next. Let's get to it. Welcome to, day, to a day of remembrance and a day to think about not just the sacrifices of those who fought, but the sacrifices of everyone who have fought for this country and for what we hold dear. There were powerful images in this last hour from the Cenotaph, from the War Memorial, spaces that normally would be crowded with people marking Remembrance Day, empty. So today is unlike any other Remembrance Day. But it is important to remember today, as we remember, that Remembrance Day has not been a fixed thing in our country. And it is important to think more broadly about Remembrance Day. And if I, if I am effective in this next segment, what I hope you will come away with is a different understanding of today and a different way to think about Remembrance Day. If I'm not, if, I'm, if I don't do it right, you're probably going to call, and you're probably going to write in and complain, and say that I have been disrespectful. And that is not what I mean to do. But stay with me. Because what do we remember today? How do we remember today? Who do we remember? I remember, personally, I remember my grandfather, Reginald Carter, who was trained as a tail gunner during the World War, Second World War. He was trained on the east coast of Canada. And for some reason, he was never sent overseas. And the joke sort of within our family was, well, Grandpa couldn't hit a barn with a, you know, he couldn't hit a side of a barn. He just had no aim. So therefore, he didn't go over to serve as a tail gunner. And it wasn't until later I realized that, no, that is incredibly fortunate. It wasn't something to make fun of because he went to a supply depot in Western Canada. Because if you know anything about the survival rate of tail gunners, if he had gone over, I wouldn't be talking to you today, possibly. I also remember Joshua Carter, my great-grandfather. He served as a... Uh, in the artillery, he served in the artillery in the First World War. He was injured in France. Um, much of the artillery was moved around by horses, and the story that is told in my family is that he was stepped on by a horse while moving a piece of artillery, at least that's what we think happened, and he came back to Canada, and it was just sort of said within the family he was never the same after, but nothing more was said than that. So those are... That is who I remember today. And, and in my home, I actually have their service medals framed. 
So what I'm going to talk about next, I want you to keep in mind that for me, Remembrance Day is something personal, like so many Canadians who are actually remembering somebody or some person that they have lost, some family member. And it's just not in the past, grandpas and great-grandpas. There are men and women serving today, and it's important that we reflect on their service. You know, we all know the story about today and how we got here. The 11th hour of the 11th day, the 11th month, the armistice. You know, the war itself, the Great War, doesn't formally end to the signing of the Treaty of Versailles in June 28, 1919. The Great War ends, the war to end all wars, they said. But of course, we know that that's not what happened. And the tradition of Remembrance Day actually evolved out of Armistice Day, which was to mark the end of the war, the Armistice Day on that day in November. The first Armistice Day was observed in 1919 on November the 10th, King George V hosting a banquet in the honor of the President of the French Republic. And this really was a celebration of the victory, of the Allied victory. And the first official Armistice Day was actually held the next day, on November 11th, on the grounds of Buckingham Palace. In 1921, the Canadian Parliament passed an Armistice Day bill to observe the ceremonies on the first Monday in the week of November. But actually, it combined it with Thanksgiving. And it was actually Thanksgiving and Remembrance Day the same day. Thanksgiving in Canada used to be in November. And for much of the 20s, Canadians really didn't do much. There was no public demonstration. In 1928, veterans pushed for greater recognition and to separate it from Thanksgiving. So in 1931, the government actually decreed the newly named Remembrance Day would be observed November 11th and moved Thanksgiving to a different date. And I did not know this, but Thanksgiving kind of moved around in the 30s and 40s and 50s. It wasn't until 1957 that Parliament actually fixed Thanksgiving as the second Monday in October. But I'm not here to talk about Thanksgiving. I'm here to talk about Remembrance Day. And the reason I talk about it the way that it has changed over the years is the way it is, the way it is celebrated, the way it is used within the culture has changed as well. And behind it all is what? Warfare. That's what we're talking about here, is it not? We are talking about the sacrifice of soldiers in war. And we like to think, here in the long peace, in the Western world that has not seen a world war for so long, we like to think that war is something that happens elsewhere. We like to think that war is something that we have somehow evolved past. Margaret Macmillan, the historian and writer, has a new book out called War, How Conflict Has Shaped Us. I'm reading it right now. It is fascinating. It's really taken over my brain. I am actually interviewing Margaret Macmillan for Focus Ontario uh, this weekend, and I hope you can join me for that. That's uh, Saturday, 5.30, Sunday, 11.30 a.m. on Global Television, and we'll 
play that interview for you later. But what Margaret McMillan writes is that war is a mystery and a terrifying, a terrifying one, and that's why we must try to understand it. And so I have to ask you this question. Does this day, this day of remembrance, subtly, not openly, but subtly promote war, or at least underscore the necessity for it? Perhaps that's not the message that you carry away from today, but is it not there Is it not part of the day, the flyovers by aircraft? The realization that war is part of the human experience. Have you noticed white poppies this year? I've noticed it by watching feeds from the UK, from Britain. I haven't seen any white poppies here in Canada, but I have noticed when watching various politicians and health leaders talking about coronavirus and so on and so forth from, from Britain, that they're often wearing white poppies, and I thought, what's that? I hadn't looked into it. Well, it's been around for decades. It's been around since the 30s, but this year it has really jumped up. What does a white poppy mean? This is from whitepoppies.ca. White poppies is an initiative for a more broadly focused Remembrance Day in Canada. We want to encourage Canadians, this again from the website, whitepoppies.ca, we want to encourage Canadians to broaden their Remembrance Day focus to include the civilians who now make up 90% of conflict victims, to challenge the beliefs, values, and institutions that make war seem inevitable. Is war inevitable? Does Remembrance Day underscore the belief and the need for war? When you listen to the newscast throughout the day, you know what you will hear? When you watch the ceremonies, you will hear about remembering and honoring those who sacrificed so that we can enjoy the life that we live today. And while true, the nugget of truth in there is that war is required to protect us and the way we want to live. And if that is an essential truth, then I think we need to accept it. What I hope you come away with, what I hope you learn, and appreciate, if I have been successful, is that when you remember today, when you remember the sacrifices, when you remember about those that have paid the ultimate sacrifice, and when you honor those who serve today, I think you need and must ask yourself some questions about what does it all mean, and what is it that you are remembering? Tim Cook is a Canadian historian, a military historian with the Canada War Museum in Ottawa, also an author of a number of books. His most recent book, 
The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. Tim Cook joins me to talk more about remembrance. Canadians remember every year, but you've written in your recent book that we're good at remembering some things, but we also forget others. What do we remember and what do we forget? Well, the act of remembrance or commemoration uh, today, Remembrance Day, is is um, a choice. We we always choose what we as society or as individuals will remember or honor or bear witness. And in my new book, A Fight for History, I look at the strange way that for decades that we largely ignored our incredible contributions during the Second World War. 1.1 million Canadians who served in uniform, one, that's one in 10 Canadians fighting around the world, contributing to the Allied victory, and yet it hasn't resonated in the same way with Canadians, and uh, I find that strange. Is that because every year, you know, as kids, we go to Remembrance Day ceremonies and we learn about the trenches and the poppy and John McRae, and is it is it that that we are so focused on the first war that we don't see the second or Korea or the peacekeeping missions? Yeah, that's part of it, I think. The Great War, the, the great trauma from 1914 to 1918, where Canada stepped out on the world stage, where we were forever changed, um, really also tore us apart through conscription. And of course, the 66,000 Canadians who died in that war um, left left a really grim uh, legacy, a dark shadow. And when we think and we commemorate, of course, Remembrance Day comes from the Great War, 1919, known as Armistice Day, the poppy, John McRae, two minutes of, of silence, the thousands of memorials we built across the country, our national memorial in downtown Ottawa, Vimy and Beaumont Hamel overseas. So you get a sense of the dominating nature of that, um, that war. It was really our the first world war, um, and we, we think about the Second War in a different way, I think. It's, it's the return of the veterans, um, the Veterans Charter that sent 50,000 to university, the veterans who helped to build up the modern country that we've inherited, um, prosperous and, and, and a, a player in, in world affairs. Um, and so we don't think of the Second World War in the same way. And I think the same would be safe for, same for Korea or our peacekeeping missions. Uh, and, and Afghanistan remains, I think, still a contested legacy. Over the decades, Remembrance Day has changed in its meaning uh, and how it's perceived. Um, you know, in the interwar years and in the lead up to the Second World War, it wasn't so much a peace movement. Um, and then, you know, after the war, it changed. Where is it now, you think? I argue that, and of course, any of the listeners who, who remember the 60s, 70s, and 80s, I mean, Remembrance Day was almost canceled. I talk about that in, in my new book in 1968. One of the national newspapers described Remembrance Day as a day of indifference. Canadians simply did not care. But things have improved, and I would argue it's been over the last 25 years since the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War in 1994, 1995. The Afghanistan mission, of course, reminded us that we're not just a nation of peacekeepers. I think the loss of our great war veterans, our last veteran in 2010, and, and as we steadily lose our second world war generation, it's forced us to reflect upon this day of history, this day that grounds us in the past, that tells us about who we are today. Um, and it's a day that is always changing. And of course, this year with COVID, we're not going to be able to gather in the same way, but I, I hope and I, I think that we can still 
uh, have those uh, private reflections, perhaps looking at a photograph or a metal set or reflecting on someone who was uh, shaped by war. It, it's a day for us to continue to, to bear witness to that service and sacrifice. I want to ask you about what happened with Whole Foods and the poppy. And I, I don't want to ask about, you know, their policy or anything like that. I, I think what I was struck by was the reaction, the uniform nature of the reaction. This was not about the poppy. It was about something more, something deeper, something Canadian. Did you sense that? I did. And of course, the poppy is a symbol in itself. It's a symbol of remembrance, of commemoration, of pride for some, sorrow for others. And it's deeply Canadian. It's tied to John McRae, the Canadian poet. It's tied to in Flanders Fields. And the poppy is, you know, we see it uh, across Canada and you see it in Britain and other Commonwealth countries, but it's not as common in the United States and in other countries. And so it is very much a Canadian symbol, a Canadian story. And I was struck as well that there was a real sense of grievance. And I, I don't think it was just about the poppy. I think it goes to something deeper. I think it goes to uh, seen as a, a turning away from our own history, our own culture, our own Canadian story. And I, I was heartened to see the, the vigorous reaction of, of Canadians who wanted to defend this symbol and in, in their own way, I suppose, defend our history and, and and defend our veterans. And the near universal assertion from Canadians that this is not a political message in any way, the poppy. No, it's not. I think it's a, it's one of those powerful symbols. And if, if your listeners maybe just reflect, what are those other symbols that we have in this country that we would stand up and fight for? The Canadian flag, I suspect. The Stanley Cup, perhaps. But, you know, <laughs> there's there's not many uh, Tim Hortons five or ten years ago, but perhaps not now. But so you know, the poppy really is an important icon for many Canadians, and um, I think we we see that every year, and it's it's a part of our uh, that broad landscape of commemoration and remembrance. That really the focal point is is November 11th, but it uh, it extends before that, and I hope beyond that as well. Back to your writing on remembering and forgetting. I think as we look at the history of the first war, and especially now that we're in a pandemic, and there's been so much writing and thinking about the flu pandemic that followed the war, it still amazes me the level of forgetting that there was about the pandemic and that pandemic and what it meant. Yeah, I, and I've commented that on in my books, my book on Vimy, the Bowden legend, I struck by Vimy as such a focal icon or legend, and yet the flu itself barely commemorated. You could scarcely find a memorial across this country from 1918 or 1919, and to remind your listeners, 50,000 Canadians were killed by the flu, and that's from a country of 8 million. Today's equivalent would be something like, well, we're almost five times as large, so 250,000 dead in about an eight-month period. That's, that's greater than the per capita losses during the Great War. And think of the thousands of memorials that we built across the country and the National Memorial in Vimy. So again, it comes back to this point of what we choose to remember, what we, uh, what we celebrate or commemorate. 
And to be brutally honest, most of our history is cast aside and left in the past. And uh, it, is, it is always a struggle, as I write in my book, The Fight for History, a struggle against apathy um, to ensure that our entire history is not forgotten. Because I think, um, you know, if we don't tell our story as Canadians, no one else will. Put your mind to a historian sometime in the future who will be writing about Canada's pandemic response and where we are right now. And I'm wondering if you could communicate to a future historian, what would you hope that a historian would see in Canada today? Well, Alan, I'm a historian. I'm more comfortable looking backwards than forwards. But I, I, I suppose if, if my thoughts and writing on memory formation and commemoration, I think that um, I don't think that we will repeat what we did in 1919. I think we will mark this terrible pandemic in, in a significant way. We will mark it with memorials, both of the mortar, stone, and marble type, but also digital memorials. We will write the histories of this event. And many Canadians, um, I'm no expert here, many Canadians will reflect on this in their own way through a, a personal sense of loss or grief or the loss of our personal freedoms. But there's also, I think, other historical analogies and metaphors and examples. And one is the Second World War or the Great War, a time of great strain and struggle a time where Canadians came together to do something hard, English Canadians, French Canadians, new Canadians, Indigenous Canadians, who, who dug deep, who made sacrifices, who bled for victory. And we see that in different ways uh, today with the pandemic and other events. And I think that there is there are historical examples to turn to. But again, um, it will be up to us to write that history. Tim Cook, always great to talk with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. That is Tim Cook, military historian with the Canadian War Museum and an author of a number of books, the most recent, The Fight for History, 75 Years of Forgetting, Remembering, and Remaking Canada's Second World War. Let's dig into those numbers, shall we? As we ask, what COVID color are you? The number is not great today as we set another one-day record with the case count in Ontario at 1,426 with 15 more deaths. Now, I often say this and I'll say it again. Don't get wigged out by the COVID case numbers day to day. Just don't do it because you just drive yourself just to distraction. You won't be able to concentrate on anything else. And one day you'll be like, woo, we're down 100. And the next day you'll be like, oh, man, we're up 150. It's the worst ever. Uh, and so try not to do that. What you're looking for really more is the seven-day rolling average. And unfortunately, I'd love to tell you that that's good news. It's not as we continue to see that seven-day rolling average well over 1,000. And the hope is here that, you know, as we're over 1,000 cases a day, that we don't do the exponential growth. Because what we've seen with COVID in the past is that, you know, maybe every 14 days you can actually, you know, get 50%, 75% gain. So two weeks from now we can be talking about somewhere in the, you know, 25 to 2,800 cases a day. And will we just start saying, well, that... That seems, you know, that, that just seems to be happening five days that we get used to it. 
You know, and, and that's obviously not where we want to be. Let me give you the testing numbers, 36,000 tests, 36,700 tests in the past 24 hours, with, again, the pending number at 34,400. And isn't it odd how the pending number and that testing number just seems to go up in and down just in tandem? Like, whatever the testing number we have, we're pretty much right in the pending number. And so as we get our testing numbers up, the, the point of that is is that if we do get our pe- testing numbers up to 50,000, which we've been promised, but you really haven't ever seen, or 100,000, which is the goal, which is we're nowhere near, if we get to 100,000 tests, are we going to have 100,000 pending results? Because if that's the case, then the whole testing and tracing is pointless if the pending number gets that big. Hospitalizations up by 2 ICUs up by six, and that's 88. ICUs at 88, a reminder that 150 is the threshold on ICUs. Anything over 150 becomes increasingly difficult to carry out scheduled surgeries. So once we get over 150, and this has been steadily gaining, and once we get over 150, if we do, then we have to start thinking about throttling back those scheduled surgeries. We don't want to do that. 198 new school cases. 116 of those are student cases, 21 are staff, 61 unspecified. That's a big number. That's a bigger number that we've seen. Obviously, we got to keep schools open. I mean, you know, we can debate back and forth all day long whether or not Doug Ford is doing the right thing with this new framework. And there are a lot of doctors who say absolutely he's not. He's listening too much to business. And, of course, the business owners are saying, look, the the evidence shows, for example, that there's been very little transmission in restaurants. So why are we all shut down? Why are we closing down that part of the economy if that's not where the spread is happening? So Doug Ford trying to balance those two things. Uh, This is uh, new information just coming out in the last little bit. Doug Ford has spoken with uh, the mayor of Toronto and also with the uh, doctor, uh, the medical officer of health for Toronto, Dr. Eileen Davila. And, quote, we have accepted the guidelines that Dr. Davila has put out going into the red zone with additional requirements and additional restrictions. So... (laughs) This is what's happened in Ontario is we have moved to this kind of loose framework in which each individual public health unit can now put in its own modified restrictions. So are we modified red stage two? I what? It it is just so confusing as to be as to just sort of count, just sort of eliminates all of the restrictions. People are just now going like, well, I'm going to figure it out on my own. It's whatever I'm comfortable with. You look at the numbers, you don't feel all that comfortable. COVID sucks. It does suck. Say it's terrible. It sucks, Doug. And so does, I'm afraid to say, your messaging, really. Because... You know, I follow this kind of for a living. And yesterday afternoon when the announcement from Toronto came out on the modified red, I feel this red is not good for me. Do we have any way to modify this red? This I, I'm more of a fall color. So can we get maybe, can we move to a, maybe of a puce maybe? you got to be kidding me. I look good in puce. Puce is actually a color. I actually, you know... I said it yesterday on the radio program. 
Uh, and Shiba Siddiqui, my producer, thought, that's not a real thing. And I said to her today, as we talked about it, I said, puce is a real thing. You look it up. It's a beige color. And she looked it up, and she said, well, you're 50% right. It's a real thing, but it's not beige, my friend. It's mauve. It's kind of a purplish red. And here is here is how you use it in a sentence. His face was puce with anger. I'm a little pucey right now. I don't understand that. I do. I do because I don't get whether or not I can go to a Zumba class or a, or go lift some weights. Did you get the whole the whole gym thing in Toronto? Did you figure that out? Yesterday I got two. I, this is this is how confusing it is. I got two email in in rapid succession from my gym. But initially, you know, as Doctor Davila finished speaking, the gym sent out a thing saying, "Hey." Classes are off. Can't have any classes, so the spin, you know, that's not coming back, but we're going to welcome you all back on Saturday. Uh, more details to come. Looking forward to seeing everybody again. And then an hour later, it's like, oh, wait, wait, wait. Um, the actual number restrictions for the gym, yeah, I can be open. The gym can be open, but it has to be 10 or less. And guess what? That's not economically viable. We're still closed. I'm puce. I'm puce as I try and figure out what in the world is actually permissible and what is not. The communication is so bad that people just like, I don't even, I, I got to look at one guideline from the province. Okay, let me find myself on there. Okay. Oh, I'm red. But that's not good enough. Now I got to go over to where I live. I'm going to add that in there. That's a modified red. Okay. Now I got all that lined up. And still, I don't know what I'm supposed to do or not supposed to do. From Brampton, from in Brampton, can't have a, have a wedding celebration until January. What? It's all very confusing. It's enough to make you puce. I knew this was going to happen. I figured it, I was going to step in it for some people. If you listen to the beginning of the program, I started off by talking about Remembrance Day. I talked about uh, my grandfather and my great-grandfather, both who served. I have their photos and their medals uh, framed in my home. But I wanted today to encourage people to think a little deeper about Remembrance Day and what it is beneath what we say we're remembering? What is it that we are talking about? Because Remembrance Day is obviously something that is part of our culture and is important to celebrate those who served and those that sacrificed. But I think it's important that we ask ourselves some tough questions about what is it that is that we are remembering and why? And of course, as I warned people as I went into that, not everybody was going to appreciate, not everybody was going to agree with me. And uh, in my inbox popped up immediately, this is uh, from Mark, by the way, if you'd, you'd like to email me, it's uh, alan, A-L-A-N, dot Carter at Global News. And he writes, Mark writes, your assessment on Remembrance Day, I have no doubt you thought, believed to be a nuanced uh, and insightful, but it was the dumbest expletive I have ever heard. I think you need to think about 
how you think about and critique Canadian culture. Your grandfather would probably not approve of what you're saying because you have no idea what you're talking about, no experience with war. That is the assessment uh, from Mark for what I had to say about Remembrance Day. I will just respond by saying I don't believe I was critiquing Canadian culture, and it is true I have no experience with war. Absolutely, 100%. Alex Manassian is on trial for the van attack in Toronto. And Mr. Manassian does not dispute, but he was behind the wheel. Neither does his defense. What is at issue in that trial is Mr. Manassian's state of mind on that day. Catherine McDonald is our crime reporter and spent the day in day one of the trial. The trial is on a break today for Remembrance Day, but Kath joins me on the line. Hi, Kath. Hi, Alan. What happens tomorrow when we come back? Well, after a very long and uh, emotionally draining day yesterday in which we heard the facts, and and those facts were uh, presented in the form of a, uh, I think, 30 or 40-page PowerPoint presentation that had videos uh, showing the rider van um, going down the sidewalk uh, into people, people running. It also showed images of people who were left uh, for dead. Uh, and it also showed a map of the route Manassian took. And it showed the rider van uh, rental agreement. And it also showed, we also saw that three, four-hour video in which he made the statement. Um, now what's going to happen is uh, experts are going to be called uh, to speak about Manassian's state of mind. We've heard from the Crown that psychologists and psychiatrists uh, will be called to give testimony. We believe that uh, the defense will call at least uh, one or two experts who will say that he was um, not criminally responsible because he was in some kind of disassociated state. You know, I think about a number of trials uh, that I've covered over the years uh, where this has been the defense. Um, uh, Richard Kashkar, he was the, the man who drove the snowplow uh, into Ryan Russell on Avenue Road. Uh, now it's probably eight, eight years ago. Uh, he was in a delusional, psychotic state at the time, and uh, his lawyers successfully argued that he was not criminally responsible. Um, Mr. Kashkar ended up at uh, a mental health a psychiatric facility, and he has since uh, been released, uh, much to the chagrin of the family. Of course, there was also the case of the woman, uh, Rohini Bissasar, who was uh, who randomly stabbed a woman in, in the PATH system in a shopper's drug mart. And she heard voices. She heard, uh, you know, what the lawyers or his lawyers are going to try and prove is that at the time of the attack, he did not understand uh, what he was doing was wrong, that he was, and they're going to say he was not criminally responsible because he was in a disassociated, disasso- I can't say the word, his state was disassociated from what he actually knew was going on. So, um, but the Crown is going to say, no, no, he planned this. They, they said this yesterday. They said he, he rented that van. He reserved it three weeks earlier. He was already planning the attack. In fact, as we know, he had the Facebook post ready to go. He, he said it, part of the facts are that as he sat at the light, at the red light at Young and Finch at 1.27 p.m. that day, and he saw this crowd of people congregating on the west sidewalk, that's when he posted from his phone about the incel rebellion uh, to his Facebook page. So the Crown is going to have people saying, look, you know, Mr. Manassian may have been upset and confused and perhaps, you know, he was uh, radicalized by the incel movement, which was, um, you know, an online movement where 
men feel they've been rejected by women. And then they, as he told uh, Detective Rob Thomas in the interview, he, he was he had become an involuntary celibate. He he didn't want to be with women because he didn't, you know, they had rejected him and he was angry. You know what? What uh, I talked a little bit about this with a defense lawyer yesterday. Um, what really fascinates me about this trial is something I, I they only touched on in the read statement of fact yesterday, which is where did Mr. Manassian, you know, get this information and and you know how did he join in this um, this group, which I guess was on 4chan of incel. Right. So, well, I found it interesting that at the end of the day, they talked about how um, among the things they seized was, was 29 electronic devices from the home where he lived with his family in Richmond Hill. 29. And they listed, uh, you know, quickly, they put them up on the screen. There were iPads, there were cell phones, there were computers, there were, uh, you know, USB sticks. What, how much this man, similar to other uh, offenders we've covered over the years, uh, spent his life on the Internet and uh, even, you know, in the case of Manaz Zaman, the man who was just sentenced to 40 years for killing his whole family, there are these people that their their lives and their friends are online. And Mr. Manassian did speak in his um, interview after his arrest. Uh, he spoke about the fact that he knew there was going to be a, a van attack or a truck attack in Edmonton. And the detective asked him, did you ever talk to that man? And he said, no, but I, I know it was him on 4chan. We're all anonymous. Uh, so there's going to be a lot. Um, we're going to hear a lot from forensic uh, forensic detectives who will be combing through the who have combed through these devices and will be uh, extracting from the hard drive some of the planning that they're going to allege. He, or well, we know what was planned. It's a fact. There, this is there's no this is not the issue. But they're going to say, you know, at the time of the attack, he had carefully planned this. He knew full well what he was doing, and that will be what they have to argue uh, to win this case. Has Mr. Manassian's um, a position on the spectrum, that there's been reporting that he uh, has Asperger's or is on the autism spectrum, did that come up? That did not come up. However, at the time after his arrest, we did speak to people who knew him um, and who said he was on the spectrum. But of course, you know, autism is not a mental illness. And that certainly would not be, uh, you know, people with autism are not violent. Uh, that is not, you know, it's a treatable condition. And so, you know, people who I spoke to from the Autism Society at the time said, you know, just, be, you know, that this is not a defense, right? This is, this is a, you know, manageable, uh, you know, medical condition that many people have, many, many people have and are treated and they're fine. So that, that I don't think that is the defense. They're going to have to uh, say that he was in a state of psychosis or he was having delusions at the time. I, I, it has to be more than just, uh, you know, this is a man with autism. This is a judge-only trial. Uh, we will get forensic experts, as you said. Uh, anyone else that we know that will be called? I think we're going to hear from a lot of people that knew Manassian. I think we're going to. Um, I think we're going to hear from people who were there that day. Uh, I think we're going to hear from, for example, the person who rented him the van at Ryder the day he went to pick it up, and he said. You know, I thought I was getting a truck, you know, he w- and so because those people are going to speak to what he was like at that, that day and that, whether they're going to be called for, for the crown or the defense, I don't know. But I think it, those are the kind of people who can speak about what is what he seemed to be like as far as his mental state in the minutes before he carried out this attack. How long do we believe the trial will last? 
Well, the trial is slated for four to six weeks. Now, I can tell you um, these things are hard to judge because sometimes they, they go faster than we anticipate. For example, yesterday, we, we weren't going to get all these exhibits that we got last night that are now on, on our website that show a lot more images and video of that terrible day. But it went really quickly, uh, and, I, and in the end, we did get these exhibits. So, you know, it's a moving target. This is a judge. There's no jury. You don't have to keep, you know, with a jury, there's a, a, often you have to stop the trial, uh, send the jury out, because you can't argue in front of them. Uh, so if there's an issue, there's a lot of, you know, sort of downtime when you have a jury trial. So with, with Justice, Madame Justice Anne Malloy, she's a senior judge. It's all business. She wanted to, you know, push through yesterday and finish that that long three-hour uh, interview with Manassian that we, of course, had seen because uh, it was released prior to yesterday. But I, I think we could see this wrap up in a month. And, you know, the thing that really struck me, other than being really uh, horrifying to hear the, the graphic and minutiae details of what happened that day, is how few members of the public actually showed up. And I think that's because of COVID. Um, you know, we're at the convention center. We can, anyone who wants to watch this trial, because of course, you know, in Canada, it's the justice system is, it's an, we have open court. So even though COVID is preventing this from being carried out in person in a courtroom, anyone can come to the Toronto convention center and, and uh, watch it on this Zoom feed. However, I think people are staying home. And so, you know, we're tweeting, I'm tweeting the trial as much as I can. Uh, but if you do want to come, come down. Uh, it's a courtroom. Uh, there's the quorum. There was a man who was, you know, a few seats away from me and he was fast asleep. And the court clerk came over. She woke him up and she told him to leave. So, um, you know, you, my mask was, I guess it was falling down a bit. And she came over and she said, put your mask up. Uh, it was very, you know, you go through a metal detector when you come in, and there are a lot of court officers there. They check your bags. Be prepared. It is a courtroom, even though you're in the convention center. Catherine McDonald, uh, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Catherine, thank you for your reporting. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Alan. Take care. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget to catch the Alan Carter Show weekdays beginning at noon.